Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Marsden Hartley in Maine. Along with Elizabeth Finch and Donna Cassidy, my guest Randall Griffey is the co-curator of the exhibition Marsden Hartley's Maine, which is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art through June 18th. The show spotlights Hartley's lifelong engagement with Maine, its residents, its coastline, forests, and mountains. The show includes about 90 paintings and drawings featuring the full range of Hartley's Maine-related work. From the Met, Marsden Hartley's Maine will travel to the Colby College Museum of Art this summer. It goes on view on July 8th. The show's strong catalog was published by the Met. Amazon offers it for $35. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, historian and curator Vivian Endicott Barnett discusses her exhibition Alexei Yolensky at the Neue Gallery in New York. But first, Randall Griffey, after the break. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. On view now, SF MoMA presents Matisse Diebenkorn, a story of artistic inspiration. Over the course of four decades, California painter Richard Diebenkorn was deeply influenced by Henri Matisse while forging a style entirely his own. The exhibition reveals how much the two painters share in their use of lush, vibrant, joyful color, attentiveness to structure and composition, choice of subject matter, and the richly layered surfaces of their canvases. See their art side by side for the first time and encounter a surprising new view of two of the 20th century's most extraordinary painters. Matisse Diebenkorn is on view through May 29th at SF MoMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World, Durham's first North American retrospective This unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free admission and free for good. And we're back. Randall Griffey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, thanks for very much for having me. Marston Hartley spends two periods of his life in Maine, shortcutting it a bit, but that's that's kind of the broad way to put it. His engagement with Maine starts with his birth, of course, in Lewiston in 1877, moves away, spends time in Ohio and New York as a young man, and returns to Maine for a particularly dedicated period of painting in the mid-19-aughts. So in this first Maine period, if we can call it that, that's roughly concurrent with the development of fauvism in Europe and the flattening of pictorial space there. How much is of, of, of Hartley's early career in Maine is about Maine and how much of it is about Europe and how much of it is it is trying to find a middle ground between the two? That's a really good question. And I don't know 
I don't know exactly how you how you splice all those points of reference exactly, but to my mind, the the early Maine period is really more about Maine than it is anything else. There is, I think, maybe a, the show generally, and especially this part of the show, pushes against a kind of tendency there is to align what happens in American modernism with a precedent in European art of roughly the same period. So there's, a, I think, a kind of a built-in apparatus where people will tend to think just automatically that American artists are always following European models. And Hartley wasn't totally unaware of, of European art at that time, but it's, I think, important to keep in mind that it's years before he actually goes to Europe. He's seen some European modernism here, not too much, but nothing along the lines of the Fauves, for instance. But those early main pictures like Hall of the Mountain King and Carnival of Autumn in that bright, direct color, the highly saturated, really bright colors are evocative in certain ways, or at least superficially of Fauvism. The more direct connection to European art of roughly the same period is as Beth Finch has written about, and others in the, have written about, and Beth has written about in the catalog, my colleague up at Colby and co-curator and co-curator, uh, co-author of the, um, of the catalog, you know, is the, the connection there is primarily in terms of European art of a long lost divisionist, an Italian divisionist by the name of Giovanni Segantini. But even there, we're pushing against a tendency to uh, read Hartley's work from this period as necessarily or so fully derivative of Segantini. Actually, if you look at Segantini's work, there's not so much of resemblance between the kind of landscape work that Segantini was doing and then what Hartley does, partly in response to knowing about his work through art journals. Really, again, only through re reproductions and, and, and reading, not through a kind of personal uh, engagement in the flesh. What Beth does in that essay, and I think is such so compelling, especially when you see the works in person, is she aligns the impasto application of paint and the very kind of tactile effect of those works to Hartley's participation in the New, New England Arts and Crafts Revival, which he would have had contact with through his associations in Western Maine at that time, specifically in and around the community of Lovell, Maine. And Hartley himself, in one instance, in a letter, at least one instance, makes a comparison between the works he's painting and the textiles that he knows weavers and artisans of this community of arts and crafts revival advocates are making. So I think it's interesting to think of those works in that context as much as it's, I think it's more meaningful to do that than to try to align him with a kind of European precedent. The other influence too is that, you know, he's at that point very much steeped in, in transcendental philosophy and this idea that from that, that God is manifest in nature. And so this kind of animating force in, in those paintings ties to that as well. That's one of the most interesting aspects of, of thinking about this show and reading the excellent catalog is the alignment of Hartley with Emerson. Emerson was a New Englander, just mentioned textiles and weaving. That's also um, an American industry with its genesis in New England. This is, this is remarkably, given that 
Thoreau has been ascendant in American letters for a generation or two, and Emerson has kind of ebbed. The second major show of the season to point to Emerson as a major a major influence. The other one, of course, is East of the Mississippi, the show of Eastern photography, 19th century Eastern photography at the National Gallery of Art. Could you explain a little bit how Hartley's interest in transcendentalism and maybe particularly Emerson that you all think um, works its way into the canvas, you know, shows up in paintings? Yeah, it's it's interesting and it changes over the course of his career as so many other aspects of his art do. And to be honest, I think initially his interest in Emerson was a little bit in a way narcissistic because uh, he's introduced to Emerson by a teacher who gives him, I think, nature by Emerson and and says that he looks like Emerson. So for, you know, a, a young student who already at a certain age, I think, was a little bit self-conscious about his looks to say that he resembled an, uh, you know, a, a, an esteemed New England author and and philosopher was a great boost. And so I think his, you know, his initial interest in Emerson, in a way, had that circumstance as its, as its genesis. Now, at the at the end of his career, really, the points of reference are more to Thoreau, and specifically Thoreau's book, The Maine Woods, which he published over the course of what three different periods over his career, and the Katahdin series, with which the show culminates, references Thoreau. Because in the Maine Woods, Thoreau writes about climbing Katahdin and Hartley writes in a letter that Katahdin is forever connected to Thoreau because Thoreau was like himself a maniac and forever linked to the mountain symbolically. So there is a little bit of a shift in Hartley's transcendentalism, which again, like ebbed and flowed uh, through the course of his career, it wasn't always as strong at one period as it was to another. But uh, in a way, he begins with Emerson, but he ends with Thoreau. I I know that we're trying not to um, overly think of Hartley and Europe, especially in this early period, but it's hard not to to think that, or to remember that the Transcendentals were the first American intellectuals really to bring European, modern European thought to America. I mean, especially for Emerson, to whom Goethe was important, and especially, most especially, Carlyle. So just as Hartley is is being open, perhaps, to some European influences early and then many more later on. He would have had to have known that the Transcendentals were sourcing their philosophy in in originally German biblical scholarship. Well, and I think in in terms of you know the the exhibition's focus on Maine, it's it presents Maine in a way that isn't quite as narrow as as people might think by reading or or initially by hearing about the exhibition, because especially. My co-curator and the co-author of the catalog, along with Beth Finch, was Donna Cassidy, who writes so wonderfully about Maine as a kind of global place, and that Hartley was thinking about Maine when he was abroad, but he was also then thinking about other places he'd been when he was in Maine. So, you know, to, I guess, loosen those geographic uh, and cartographic barriers in a way to, to make them much more fluid. And the best example of that actually is the, in the exhibition is a selection of reverse paintings on glass that he did while he was participating in the Algonquit 
art colony in the summer of 1917. These are works that are very rarely seen. They're very fragile. Not many of them remain. Not many of them survived from Hartley's creation of them in 1917. But he's interested in these moments where he find, can find correspondences between what is happening in American art and what he knows is also happening in European art after having been there. So glass painting is really interesting from this perspective because he had been in, introduced to Bavarian glass painting by uh, Vasily Kandinsky and Gabriel Munter when he was in Germany. And then when he comes back to the U.S., you know, it's fascinating for him to discover that the modernists he knows in Agunquit are similarly kind of mining folk culture as appropriating historical folk culture as in a way proto-modern because it's uh, it's anti-academic. And so there's there's a, there's an example there are actually three examples of Hartley's great reverse paintings on glass from Ogunquit and included in that is an actual 19th century reverse painting on glass by an anonymous American folk artist drawn from the uh, American wing here at the Met that makes that connection, I think, in a really revealing way. We'll do our best to get images of, of those on, on manpodcast.com. That section of the catalog was, uh, I, you know, I read it like three times. I mean, that was such a stunning new thing to me. It was really exciting. From the very beginning, Hartley was making landscape paintings of Maine in, in, in the 19 aughts. Was he consciously, specifically interested in in playing on American art's greatest playing field? Was was he consciously engaging 100 years of tradition? Well, Hudson River painters were never really a great point of reference for Hartley. In fact, Hartley was sort of the, the generation of American modernists who, you know, at different points in time, especially throughout the early 20th century, took fairly dim view of the illustrative, in some cases even kind of hyper-realistic, views of landscape by the Hudson River School. That is to say, you know, in short, that Thomas Cole wasn't a hero for Hartley and that generation. I mean, Hartley was of the generation, especially of the Stieglitz Circle, who claimed as, in a way, spiritual forebearers, even though they lived into the 20th century to some extent, was the the, the big three, of course, were Albert Pinkham Ryder, Winslow Homer, and in certain instances, Thomas Aikens. So those were the three artists rooted in the 19th century, historical American artists that artists of Hartley's generation would claim as kindred spirits, more so certainly than than Frederick Church and friends. Revealing phrase there, though, right? Kindred spirits. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, pun, pun intended, right? I guess that's why that probably came out of my mouth that way. I started, I started thinking of the painting. So in, again, then in, in answer to your question, really, I don't he, think he's self-consciously engaging or thinking of extending that tradition. In fact, I think that he's thinking of breaking, in a way, a tradition of American landscape painting that he would have known. You know, and I think one of the goals of the exhibition, especially the the first couple of galleries that are filled with his early works, is to highlight how very, in a way, radical they are. And he's encroaching on levels of ex- abstraction that I think people had forgotten that Hartley pursued at this point in his career. And, you know, some of them are, are quite remarkable in that regard. And in that context, I think there's he's meant to be trying to find a new vision of landscape, not extend in any way, shape or form, or even conceptually, the, the idea of American landscape going back to Thomas Cole, for instance. 
And I would say, too, that the, the these early beautiful square format paintings, these are the paintings that he launched his career with at Alfred Stieglitz's 291 gallery in 1909. So, and this is the work that caught Stieglitz's eye. He said he recognized a spirit in Hartley that he liked, and that's with this work. And this is the work that Hartley debuted at Stieglitz's gallery. And the, the exhibition, as far as we can tell, offers the largest assembly of these early works really since that 1909 showing. Your colleague Elizabeth Finch notes that in these early paintings, Hartley is is very much painting specific seasons across the landscape, an interest he maintains to the very end of his life, such as in the great Katahdin painting at the Sheldon at the University of Nebraska with its bright red shock of, of, of trees changing color. Would you assign that interest more to Walt Whitman as as Finch does, or is there kind of a possible analog with the European tradition, although granted, of course, in the European tradition, the, the you know, the engagement with the seasons is mostly allegorical and Hartley's painting the color. Well, I think it's hard to, you know, pinpoint a specific source. I mean, there are, I think, multiple points of reference uh, throughout throughout his production. With regard to seasonal change, I think that Hartley was aware of the of dramatic seasonal change being a characteristic of the New England landscape that was distinctive. So I think he, he's aware of that. But he also, especially later in his career, is thinking of serial painting, especially with regard to the, the Katahdin series with which the exhibition culminates. And there, you know, a point of reference that is clearly the, the most important European reference for Hartley throughout his career is Cezanne's views of Mont Saint-Victoire. And Hartley adopts Katahdin as his American analog, basically, to Cezanne's Mont Saint-Victoire and Aix-en-Provence. And, but another even more point, you know, an equally important reference there, too, I think, though, is the are the Japanese printmakers Hiroshige and Hokusai, whom we also have added to the Mets presentation of this show. We uh, have a beautiful selection of views of Mount Fuji as a kind of preamble to the Katahdin series by Hartley, because Hartley also in letters references the two Japanese printmakers and the views of Mount Fuji for which they're so. If I could just jump in, you quote that in your essay. So let me let me read that quote. This is Hartley, quote, I never tire of, of Katahdin. After all, Hiroshige did 80 woodblocks of Fujiyama, so why can't I do 80 Katahdins? And each time I do it, I feel I am nearer the truth. Yeah, it's a great quote. He didn't quite make it to 80. But I think that's another great example of the expansiveness of his conception of Maine. You know, he he's thinking in terms of some, well, somehow parallel universes that cut across time and space. And so... Katahdin is to him what Mont Saint-Victoire is to Cezanne as uh, Mount Fuji is to Hiroshige and Hokusai. So in that regard, Katahdin in Maine becomes a very expansive place more than a kind of narrow and provincial one. Good segue into Europe where Hartley goes in the 19-teens and 1920s. And Hartley takes Maine with him to Europe. How and why does he do that? Well, he writes about Maine frequently in his letters while he was abroad. He actually takes drawings of Maine with him, uh, shares them with artists. And when he's in Europe in the 20s, where there's increasing pressure from Stieglitz and other critics to 
to re-engage with his homeland and quit, you know, running around quite as much as he's been doing, he revisits early Maine imagery in two amazing paintings that we have included in the exhibition that are rarely seen and in a way, one of them actually hasn't ever been properly photographed until the catalog. These two paysages that are revisitations of the dark landscapes, but only, well, about 15, 15 years later. So in a way, he resuscitates the iconography, the very Albert Pinkham writer-esque iconography of the writer-esque of the, of the dark landscapes while he's working in Paris. And he exhibits them in 1925, just the uh, January of 1925, a few weeks later. So it, it actually ties to the quote with which we opened the ex exhibition, which is in his tribute to Maine in 1937, he says that his, his education began in his native hills and they went with him wherever he went, never looking so wonderful as they did to him while he was in Provence and in Germany, etc. So I think that the point there that's important to take away is that you know, this, this project, this exhibition is emphasizing continuity in Hartley's art through the lens of Maine as much as change. Because Hartley was so stylistically diverse and because he did, because he was peripatetic, there's a tendency to kind of break his output into discrete chunks depending on where he is at any given point in time. But if you look especially at his career through the lens of Maine, you see amazing continuity. And in some ways, you know, the, the, he again thinks about Maine even when he's abroad. And in instances like I just described, he actually paints Maine from memory while he's abroad. He also does these paintings of individual discrete objects, I think while he's in Europe, uh, shells, a lobster, kind of a way of referring back to Maine and things he would have known from Maine via, I guess, a very vague nod at a European still life tradition, but a really vague nod. <laughs> yeah, the still lifes that are in the show are actually are works that he would have painted in Maine. So after his, you know, kind of return to Maine in 37, and their, you know, signature Maine subjects, especially, of course, the lobster <laughs> stands out in that regard. And that's an instance really of Hartley is, you know, self-aware that he's engaging at this point in, in kind of tourist imagery and tweaking it in a way. And because, of course, the lobster has become a kind of tourist symbol for the state generally. The, and then the, the, those single object still lives, most of which, you know, his, he paints the theme of mortality runs throughout the show and, and includes the still life subjects he chooses, which are all, you know, they're not really still lives. They're, they're, they're still deads. <laughs> they're still deaths. You know, and yeah, they 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 exemplify the kind of direct intensity that I think a lot of people really love about Hartley. And the 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 black duck actually that is in the show, some have interpreted as a kind of coded self-portrait. And I won't go into the reasons why, but you know, it is true that Hartley was often painting himself, you know, or projecting himself onto the subject, whatever he happened to be painting. There are a couple of shell paintings in the catalog. I don't know if we can have images of those two, but we will have a shell picture or two on onmanpodcast.com. Hartley made some in Paris in 1928. Yeah, in, in some instances there, yeah, it's believed that he may have taken shells with him as part of the kind of personal effects he, he traveled with and then set them up a la Cezanne uh, while he's abroad. So there's so much modernity in 
so many Hartley paintings, but his pictures of Maine pretty much don't show it. We don't see factories. Uh, we don't see power lines. We don't see uh, paved roads and, and, and so forth. So how do we reconcile or how might we reconcile Hartley's acutely often flattening modern compositions and his modern use of color and his modern painterliness with his kind of anti-modern presentation of place? Or, or maybe that's just the foundational paradox of modernist American painting and, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the, I think, interesting facts about his artistic engagement in Maine or with Maine from the very outset is that he's from an industrialized part of Maine, Lewiston, you know, was was a mill town and factories. And his father at a time during his um, childhood managed a boarding house, most of which would have been filled with mill workers. So, you know, he knows very directly from his childhood the, the industrial side of Maine, which never really figures in to his painting. Now, why that's the case, you know, one can really only conjecture. He certainly didn't write about this practice of omission. But you're right that Hartley's Maine is anti-modern. And in fact, when he was working in Lovell, Beth points out in her essay that, you know, the, the railroad didn't go any really anywhere near Lovell. You, there was a stop there. You had to get on a stagecoach even to get to it. So it's, it's, it is a great paradox with Hartley because, you know, when he's in Berlin, of course, he's in love with the modernity of Berlin, the Zeppelins and the sense of speed and power and so on. But when he's at home, he makes, you know, he goes to great pains to omit signs of modernity. And, you know, why that's the case, you know, I think, again, can really ultimately be left to gesture, but he is participating in a pre-existing tradition in the larger narrative of modernism. I would say you could go back to Paul Gauguin you know, as a way of a kind of there's a tendency to turn one's back on modernity as it's defined in terms of an, a kind of industrial uh, lifestyle or uh, existence. And he goes, you know, increasingly to great pains for that. But here's a way in which the one way I think Hartley's, especially like those Katahdin views, come into a larger tradition of American landscape painting which you mentioned earlier, although I think there are more differences than similarities. Uh, actually, uh, I was doing volunteer training in the exhibition a few days ago, and one of the very smart volunteers asked me why I thought Hartley never really put figures in his, any of his landscapes. There's, there are discrete references to human habitation, you know, and, or f in some cases, former human habitation in the form of abandoned farm settlements and the like. But you never really see figures occupying the landscape. And I think part of that has to do with Hartley is, in many instances, and especially, I think, in that late work, where there are no roads, there are no power lines, as you say, that he is giving you as viewer the impression as landscape painters have in different ways for centuries, and especially in the context of the Hudson River School, that you are the first human to lay eyes on that landscape. You know, there's a sense of that it's untouched. And that, I think, is the, the most meaningful way in which you can connect partly to what you might call as a kind of Hudson River School tradition. I mean, in those instances, sometimes the Hudson River painters would actually paint in a little figure that is acting as a surrogate for the viewer. And Hartley doesn't even do that. But I think the intended effect is somewhat the same. 
that he gives you that the viewer that kind of privileged vision of seeing it first and takes and leaves you there so in the 1930s two events one one natural and one not seem to have had big impacts on hartley Starting in around 1936, Hartley uh, begins to engage with Winslow Homer's work. And in 1938, a hurricane blows through New England. Are those two things that kind of co-found the work that comes over over the end of his career? Or are they discrete and separate? And should we talk about them separately? <laughs> well, I, I guess there, are, there would be you know, some connection from one to the other. But it, it, what is true, and this is what I write about in my essay for the book, as well as regarding Homer, is that I think one of the ways in which I find Hartley so interesting is he's very sensitive and responsive to the moment in time he's in, to his circumstances, in ways that I think that maybe have been underestimated. And the Winslow Homer centennial in 1936 is really a big touchstone for Hartley. It's around that time that he realizes he must, as a if he's going to be painter of Maine, he has to claim the coast. Heretofore, that is to say, prior to nineteen the mid nineteen thirties, his images of Maine had been almost exclusively inland Maine, closer to the kind of Maine that he knew. Although, again, not reflecting that Maine exactly, but inland nonetheless. It's not a coincidence that in nineteen thirty six, or it's around nineteen thirty six, that you know, a wave of of memorial uh, commemorative exhibitions and publications. This is, of course, when Lloyd Goodrich's uh, great canonical foundational work on on Homer begins. That Hartley realizes that he, in a way, needs to kind of publicly frame himself as the heir apparent. And as a native, he feels like he's an especially appropriate and prime position to do that. And he, in a way, the late career to some, I mean, it's multidimensional, but one dimension of it is that he wants to present himself and he does uh, successfully, ultimately present himself as the kind of second coming of Homer, who, of course, interesting, was not a native, Massachusetts native, but was canonized in American culture for the Prout's Neck pictures. Uh, one of which we also have included in the show. So it's a great opportunity to see Homer's Nor'easter, one of the great Proutsnick paintings from the American Wing here at the Met. Really grateful to my colleagues in the American Wing for offering up so many of their treasures to help us unpack Hartley, uh, in a way, his art in the show. And then the th three great wave paintings by Hartley, which to, in, to some extent function as homages to Homer and make so clear the Hartley's aspiration to be seen as the kind of second coming. Is there a relationship between the waves and the timber paintings, or is it just that they happened and were made at roughly the same time? Well, they, they certainly overlap in time. And the, by time, we're thinking in terms of, you know, years between 1940 and his death in 1943. I think what one gains from that is that Hartley still is thinking about the, as, as at the same time he is claiming the coast, as you might say, a la Homer, he's not giving up inland Maine. And also I think those, these logging pictures, which I think are some of the standouts in the show, people don't t tend to know them. 
they're great compositionally. They're just, frankly, just great to look at. They, they're filled of that kind of zigzag, zigzagging, overlapping pattern that Hartley just excels at, especially in the context of the technique he's using, which is by 1940 onward, he's painting primarily on these cheap industrial masonite boards. And one of the things I love about the logging pictures is that I think this is a bit accidental or it's surreptitious, but he's painting on board, which of course is predicated on lumbering. So there's this wonderful kind of relationship, a kind of self-reflexive relationship between the, what he's painting and what he's painting on. So I think that the connection there has to do mainly to, to the fact that he wants to claim all of Maine. He doesn't just become a coastal painter. You know, he's, he's inland, he's on the coast, he's up to Katahdin, which is farther north. You know, he's really covering his bases, I guess you could say. So this is an American Hartley show and a Maine Hartley show. So let me just play devil's advocate for a moment and throw out two ideas about how these paintings, the wave paintings and the lumber timber paintings could also be about Europe. One way of reading the paintings of, of waves, Atlantic Ocean waves breaking on the Maine coast could could be a could be Hartley delivering a conscious reminder that European ideas about art, which he himself transited, were continuously arriving in America and that regionalism was a failed construct. Is that a fair way to think of the waves? I actually, my, I mean, my perspective is in a way is Hartley, what in his own way, was all in on regionalism. And I don't mean to sound, you know, or, or to suggest a kind of cynicism about it, but there is an element of Hartley, again, responding to the circumstances that he understands and finding a way of working and excelling within them. I mean, he had... Since the 20s, as I mentioned earlier, there was pressure upon him, especially from Stieglitz, to put roots down in the U.S. And Hartley had been criticized, actually, in reviews that his work suffered for the fact that he didn't have roots in American soil. So this idea of rootedness is, permeates 1920s culture and extends into the 1930s and does overlap, of course, with um, what we think of as more conventionally regionalism and... So I, 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 I'm very comfortable thinking of Hartley's late work as regionalist because I, I don't think of it in a way that is provincial in the way that it's been um, written off you know, so often. I think what is interesting, though, about what you say about the really – I mean, he's certainly aware that he's looking toward Europe, right? But those waves are really threatening, the, 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 those, the circumstances of those waves, the, the water – the, the weather conditions is really those are super threatening, nightmarish even images. So one of them threatens a lighthouse, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It might have something to do with the fact that, you know, that his he knows by this point his any time he's had to work and live in Europe really is behind him. You know, that that those I think avenues are, are now really he understands they're shut down. But more, I guess, less speculatively those paintings are really also about Hartley's association of water and death, you know, Hart Crane, his friend and, you know, the great American poet Hartley knew personally, and he committed suicide by throwing himself overboard on his way back from, from Mexico uh, on a trip. 1933. Yeah. So, and Hartley overlapped with Hart Crane then. So the, the fact that Crane, committed suicide really stung Hartley because I think, you know, Crane was 
in the state of mind he was in because he feared, among other things, that he was an, an artist with nothing left to say. And I think that fear registered with Hartley in a very profound way, who, you know, in the 20s into the 30s, really until, you know, he goes all in on Maine, is, has, I think, parallel similar fears. Um, the other point of reference, I think, with regard to the kind of mortal symbolism of the water is that in 1935 and 1936, he lives two separate occasions with a, a family in Nova Scotia by the name of the Francis Mason family. And the two sons of that family during his second visit and time living and living with them, uh, they uh, drowned at sea in a storm. And so it becomes the kind of experience and material that Hartley then turns into a long prose poem called Cleophas and His Own. And of course, a sea burial throughout the northern states is, is not uncommon. In fact, the last, the last painting on Hartley's easel at the time of his death was a, a still life uh, left unfinished of roses, which is clearly bound in a way to be an offering for a sea burial. And that was the title of his last collection of poetry published during his lifetime. So I guess partly, I guess it's interesting to see, you know, the, the Homer Nor'easter at the Hartley waves, as I mentioned, but Hartley's waves look far, far more threatening. I mean, there's nothing, nothing picturesque about Hartley's coastal views. Let me play devil's advocate by setting you up on logs and timber. Uh, you mentioned their varied and gripping uh, composition a few moments ago. In all of the timber paintings, Hartley uses logs or timber in a way that plays with the picture plane. And that could often, if one were inclined to believe this, and I'm not sure I am, could refer to cubist strategies, to the chopping up of, of, of space with diagonals and horizontals. Do you think he has... You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that I think Harley's a great cubist or really cared that much about cubism. But do you think he's thinking through any of that here? Oh, I think that I mean, I think that's one of the ways in which Hartley's work is so rich, is that even when he's in a kind of regionalist vein, it's underpinned by his knowledge and experience of European modernism. Oh, yeah, I, I see that very much so, you know, his He's steeped in that, you know, and even as he changes in a way to into different idioms and to different new subjects, specifically main subjects in this case, there's always an echo, an underpinning, a kind of a substructure of of in many instances, it is kind of cubist. The, the good example, the best example, I think, is the is Smelt Brook, Brook Falls from the uh, St. Louis Art Museum, that dense concentration of the water in the center that, you know, it, it, it is so evocative of the, the kind of uh, gravitational pull of the center of a analytic cubist painting and how it then it disperses as it expands to the perimeters of the picture plane. That could also be a Cezanne tabletop, tabletop textile. I mean, that's an amazing painting. Um, if I had to pick, you know, maybe the great underknown American Hartley, that might be it. I mean, I think that's just a which one? Which one? The St. Louis painting, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a really important painting. It's 1937. It's the year that he says, I'm the painter of Maine. So it's among the earliest he creates of Maine after he announces that he is the painter from Maine. 
And the rest of you, including John Marin, should back off. We're leaving out some of the Marin stories, such as Hartley writing a catalog essay for Marin when Marin had a retrospective, I think, at MoMA. Yeah, again, there's again, he's responding to his circumstances. And yeah, in 1936, MoMA, MoMA mounted a Marin retrospective. Marin was the first Stieglitz Circle artist to be given that honor. And Hartley writes for the catalog. Um, I think he writes it while he's in Nova Scotia, so, you know, a bit farther afield. And, and it's no accident that it's at the very next. And also, Marin is lauded in reviews as a great painter of Maine. In fact, you know, one review, I think I maybe I quote it, a critic basically says that Maine is the nursery that's given, you know, Marin his greatest artistic voice. And you know that that piqued Hartley's competitive spirit. And that's when he starts asserting his nativeness. And it, it, what's always, I think, hard in a way, it was initially hard for me to wrap my head around, but it is a fact that when he proclaimed himself painter of Maine in 1937, there were actually no paintings of Maine in the show. They were all Nova Scotia works. But in the, in the essay, he conflates Nova Scotia and Maine to say they're basically of the same place to kind of, I think, fudge it until he can get the inventory which he then has the next year, which was which would have been when he showed the 1937 painting Smelt Brook Falls at his first show at Hudson River, Hudson Walker's gallery, uh, with whom he showed uh, 1938, 1939, and 1940, and that's when Hartley Star really starts to rise. Let's wrap up with the late, extremely great figurative paintings that Hartley makes in Maine. My favorite and, and one of Hartley's absolute masterpieces is the great Canuck Yankee Lumberjack at Old Orchard Beach from uh, 1940-41, the painting at the Hirshhorn. So this is th this painting and all of these kind of late figurative paintings, we'll have a bunch of them on the website, um, and of course they're in the show and they're in the catalog. They are almost all mashups of, of European modernism. The bather is very much a Cezannean figure, and the landscape behind the bather of beach, sea, sky is, is very Matissean, very out of, say, Seder and Fawn, or very out, even more out of bathers with a turtle. Was it important to Hartley at the end of his life to bring Maine, you know, at, 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 in one corner of America, a place not maybe fully engaged with American modernity in 1940 to bring the greatest paintings of the European tradition to his place? I don't know how much that would have been a priority for Hartley. He certainly doesn't write about it in those terms. But I think what I think is so fascinating about his engagement with Cezanne, especially with those beach, those bather paintings, which, you know, Hartley in a way wants to construct his own, a parallel universe, like a, 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 a his own universe that's parallel to Cezanne's. So just as Mont Saint-Victoire is to Cezanne as Hartley then adopts Katahdin as a kind of parallel, the, 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 the bathers at Old Orchard Beach, including the Canuck Yankee Lumberjack, are parallels in a parallel universe to Cezanne's bathers. But I think what's so interesting about his late engagement with Cezanne is that in a way he is engaging with Cezanne as a regionalist, that Cezanne's renown is predicated on Cezanne's devotion to his home of Aix-en-Provence and the art he made as, in a way, a, a devotee. 
And so Cezanne is a key in that he is a regional painter who is universally recognized as a modern master. And that is the balance that Hartley is trying to strike and really does, you know, before he dies in 43. But even Cezanne, I think, for Hartley in the 30s, the late 30s and into the early 40s, he's engaging with as a regionalist, but as a, a model for not only being a regionalist, but becoming re universally respected and heralded. The male figures in these paintings are the most overtly sexual portraits, Hartley, often portraits, Hartley ever paints. And even even the great uh, Nodding Rope from 1939-40 on the cover of the catalog, a painting which um, I'd never seen and maybe has not been ex exhibited in many decades, is a really, really sexual painting. Is there any relationship between what you were just discussing, Cezanne, Europe, European regionalism, and Hartley's sexualization of, of these figures and, and even references to sex in a painting like Nodding Rope? I mean, I think you can discern a little bit off the track of your question, but you, I think you can discern a bit of kind of Whitman-esque exaltation of the common man that has a kind of sensuous, the, sen the sensuous exaltation of the common man. I mean, he's certainly aware of Whitman's writings and the kind of uh, what I guess Whitman would have called manly um, cohesion and the way in which that can be eroticized or even just used as a code, which, of course, Hartley was often working in code. But, yeah, there seems, though, to be very little coded about those figures of the men who are nearly nude. And in fact, our friends in conservation in Chicago confirmed that Madawaska, actually, the uh, Madawaska Acadian Light, Light Heavy, originally had no kind of, I don't know, undergarment, jockstrap, whatever that thing is he's wearing. And yeah, he, you know, he was originally, I guess, a uh, full Monty. And no doubt, Hartley, I guess it's a little bit like Sargent raising the strap on Madame X after you know, getting criticism, but before, clearly Hartley must have painted that on after before he showed it in public. And I mean, I think that's a key point to keep in mind is that these are all paintings that Hartley showed in public. This was not a kind of private art like Demuth, who Charles Demuth, who would have had a kind of, uh, who had a kind of erotic output that was for a very circumscribed group of friends, or maybe even just for himself, and then had a public kind of face as an artist. I mean, these are all works that Hartley showed, but clearly with Madawaska, it seems that he made it in a way, altered it so it was more publicly permissible to avoid the full nudity. And then the other thing he does in some of them, including Madawaska, is that when he shows them, he makes clear in the exhibition brochure to identify the hypothetical space in which these works are intended. And the case of Madawaska and also Flaming American Swim Champ, he says they're intended for gyms. If I could just jump in, you noted in your catalog essay that he was collecting physique magazines in this period, too. Right. And there are, are there are photographs of nude men who are unidentified, mostly unidentified in his personal effects. So, you know, there is a he has this kind of private erotica, which seems so clearly connected to these really, in a way, still audacious figure paintings. And, but at the same time, they 
don't damage his reputation. In fact, quite the opposite, they enhance it because they're seen as, I mean, of course, they're, 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 he shows them in the context of a, you know, a kind of, in the 1930s, especially into the 40s, the kind of WPA era exaltation of the working body. But of course, they're interesting too. Hartley's always different. Those Hartley's figures, even if they're identified as, as laborers, they tend not to be working at all. They just sit there and look back at you. You know, I mean, that's what makes them so audacious, I think, is that they seem so clearly objectified. They have no function other than to be adored. And again, they, they, then he frames them as sort of as saints in a way, secular saints, regional saints. I like that idea of melding, and you made it in your essay too, of, of using Whitman to bring an American tint to a European bather or single figure um, tradition. And credit where credit's due. I mean, the Jonathan Weinberg, who is a great Hartley scholar, makes that connection of, you know, that that Hartley's bathers are, in a way, Whitman's heroes in a in a Cezanne-esque form. So there I'm, I'm leaning very much on, on Jonathan Weinberg's previous writing. Wonderful. Randall Griffey, thanks so much for speaking with me. Oh, it was great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, visit mfah.org muick for more. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu abney. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings, this exhibition of more than 30 works by African American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is historian and curator Vivian Endicott Barnett. Her new exhibition is Alexei Yelensky at the Neue Gallery in New York. The show features 75 paintings and is the artist's first full museum retrospective in the United States. Jelensky was a Russian-born expressionist who moved to Munich in 1896, 
and became an important figure in how Central and Eastern European artists engaged with early modern art, especially with Van Gogh, Matisse, Fauvism, and more. The show's on view at the Neue through May 29th. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by Prestel Verlag. Vivian Endicott-Barnett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Yes, good morning, Tyler. Alexei Jalensky finds an interest in art in Russia, his, 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 his native country, in the 1880s and 1890s, but it's not until moving to Munich at the end of 1896 that things begin to click into place, that he emerges as a mature painter. Why was it Munich to which he moved, and why did that prove to be such an important spot? Many artists, not only Yavlensky, but also other Russian artists and other artists from the East all went to Munich. Sure, maybe they had taken trips to Paris, but they chose to study in Munich. Um, not only Yavlensky, but also Kandinsky went there about the same time in 1896, and they both studied with a Slovenian artist named Anton Ajbe. So, so why is it Slovenians and Russians end up in Munich? Is there a, a particular, is Munich a hotspot for Germans the way Wiesbaden would later become? I think it was at the time. I mean, they, they also traveled to Paris, they exhibited in Paris, but Munich was definitely a hotspot. Later on, Berlin and Wiesbaden attracted many Russians, but there was an opportunity to study there. There were, there were exhibition possibilities. There were galleries. All those things are important to artists. But at that point, even though Yavlensky was not young, um, he started to study painting. With, he had studied some privately in Russia, he had been planning to go into a military career following his father's and grandfather's footsteps, but he decided, along with Mariana von Verevkin, who was a fine artist in her own right, they traveled together to Munich in 1896. So in these early years in Munich, particularly as we get into the early 20th century, Jelensky seems hugely in the thrall of, of Vincent van Gogh, not, I mean, you know, half of Europe was. How did he come to know van Gogh's work? Was it through shows in Munich, through seeing it in Paris? It was both, actually. Van Gogh was well-known many places. He exhibited in Munich, and he also, of course, showed in Paris, and Yavlensky and Verevkin had gone to France several times, even before they decided to, to, um, to settle in Munich, where he studied. And Van Gogh's work was all around, and I think that Yavlensky's sensibility loved the color and the, the emotional quality in Van Gogh's painting. Even before then, he was familiar with Gauguin's work, as well as German artists and many other European artists, and not to mention the Russian ones, but certainly, especially the early works in the exhibition, many of them show his familiarity with Van Gogh's art. Self-portrait with a top hat being perhaps a really good example. It's both a self-portrait, of course, but it's also got lots of Van Gogh brushwork without really being Van Gogh's colors. Exactly. And this painting, he did, it was a self-portrait. He did it when he was 40 years old. And the way in which... Yavlensky in the self-portrait looks out at the viewer and also the way the hat is positioned has echoes of Van Gogh's self-portrait with a straw hat, although God knows Yavlensky was wearing a top hat, not a straw hat for him. 
And the painting was done in 1904, along with others, shows a clear inspiration from Van Gogh and Gauguin and other artists, French, German, Russian. So one of the things that, 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 that's interesting to me is that, that Jelensky and other kind of modernists working in, in Germany find Fauvism in 1905, 1906 to 1905. French Salon is the famous Wild Beasts moment in which Fauvism is named. Does Jelensky see that one or does he really begin his interest in Fauvism the next year in 1906? Certainly, Yavlensky would have seen the um, Fauve exhibition in 1905 because that year he there was also another special exhibition during the time of the Salon d'Automne that was organized by Sergei Diaghilev, who was a friend of Yavlensky's. And Diaghilev organized an exhibition of two centuries of Russian art. So there were icons, there were paintings by Yavlensky in the show, as well as by Larionov and Goncharova, and Yavlensky was in Paris in 1905. And then in the summer of 1906, Yavlensky and Mariana von Verefkin went to Brittany to a seaport town, a fishing village called Carantec, where he painted a lot of, of works and was really inspired. So that the, it was a whole period of time of when there was a lot of contact with France, not only Yavlensky, but also other Russian-German artists like Vasily Kandinsky went to Paris in 1906-7 and lived with Gabriela Munter, although he certainly didn't paint any Fauve-inspired pictures at that time. But Yavlensky did. He was very advanced, and he, he really understood that there was a big shift taking place in modern art. Do you think his Fauve engagement comes through Matisse at first, or do you think it takes him a little while to get to Matisse? Hard to tell. I think he was certainly familiar with Matisse and Durand and Vlamanque and the Fauves in 1905 when he was in Paris and also in 1906. But in many cases, it takes artists a little while before they really incorporate into their own work what they what they see and what they understand. It often takes a few years before an artist really integrates the, the new style, the new direction into her or his own work. And certainly Yavlensky felt early on that in his still lives, he was able to express himself better. He was able to find his own direction better in still lives whereas in some of the early figure paintings in the exhibition, there's a strong sense of Van Gogh or Matisse. The, the, the still life from 1908 that's in the show, still life with yellow coffee pot and white teapot, is really about as close as he gets to Matisse until 1910, and it's not very matisse except for its, its mashing up of objects that are quite familiar from Matisse painting. Yes, but the colors are different. And <laughs> totally different, and especially in the, the painting that you referred to with the teapot and the coffee pot, there's this wonderful blue-black back, background that you see. And then there's a wonderful uh, painting of Marianne, of Helene Neznakomov called Dark Blue Turban from 1910, where the background is pink and the dress red, and she's 
really focusing on the viewer. And that painting, to me, has strong Matisse overtones. There's a whole wall there with paintings that reflect Matisse's inspiration for Yovlensky, a girl with a green face, a painting of Helene Neznikomov with closed eyes, and then this wonderful dark blue turban. Helene with Colored Turban of 1910 is a plain riff on Matisse's 1907 red madras headdress that is at the Barnes Foundation in in, in uh, Philadelphia. So, yeah, let's talk about 1910. It's a really interesting year in, in his work. He goes to Obernau and, and Murnau in the south of the extreme south of Germany, south of Munich. With whom is, is Jelensky there? And are they working together or, or are they just seeing each other? How, how does that kind of cauldron work? It really started in the summer, late summer, early autumn of 1908, when Yovlensky and Verevkin, together with their friends, Kandinsky and Minter, all went to Murnau, this village to the south of Munich. And they painted together, but the first summer they also stayed together at the same inn. And then they would go out with their cardboards and with their paints and brushes and paint different views in the, of the landscape in the surrounding countryside and also in the town. So it was, a real, it was a real group inspiration and there was a lot of synergy and energy that came out of their working together. And of course, all four artists had already been in Paris, so they knew something about the Fauves, but I think it's really only at that point in 8, 9, and 10 that they were able to integrate all the new directions in modern art into their own work. And Gabriella Minter wrote quite a bit about Yvlensky and how he was so eager to talk and to relate all that he knew and all that he had learned about synthesis. And Yvlensky and Varefkin went back to Murnau for two more summers in 1909 and then in 1910 and painted the countryside uh, yes, there are several wonderful landscapes of, of that Yevlensky did in Murnau and in Oberau and surrounding villages that summer of 1910. And then the following few years, they vacationed, went other places. Those are small. Those those two landscapes, Oberau and Murnau from, from 1910, are uh, small but completely mature. I mean, they are they are as much... Kandinsky and Munter influenced as they are Fauve influenced as they are, say, Cezanne influenced. They are uh, one, one of them from the National Gallery, one of them from a private collection. They are really terrific paintings. We, we, we touched on the portraits that, that Jelensky is making at this time a few moments ago, and they are the works that are the most Matisseian he, he ever makes. Do we know anything about, I mean, he jogs really close to Matisse here. Do we know anything about how much contact he had with Matisse before they met in, I think, 1911? I believe the first time they really met was in 1911, but it's hard to be certain of all these dates because Yavlensky was not a precise artist. He didn't keep a diary, and, and he this didn't pops, have... This pops you up know in your that, catalog essay again and again, his imprecision with dates. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, he he was off by a year or two, but I think most artists are, you know, even ones who are super precise, and sometimes they insist upon the the right date, even though it's 
slightly different, but certainly in 1911 he met Matisse. They had some contact probably earlier. Whether it was personal contact or whether he just knew the paintings, I don't, you know, I can't swear. I wasn't there. You know, about those 1911 meetings, though, Yolensky does remember them as, quote, long and fascinating conversations. And it seems that maybe not too long afterward, he begins to find his way out of remaking Matisse's as, as he does maybe in, in the turbaned painting and begins to synthesize Matisse in the context of other artists, maybe most obviously Kandinsky. How much do, do we know either from Yelensky's own hand or from his paintings about how how he began to kind of put a range of artists together to create his own things. It seems to me it happens right, right about now, 11, 12, 13 ish. Yeah, I, I agree. And certainly he felt that 1911 was a breakthrough year that summer. Yavlensky and Verevkin and Helene Neznakomov and also Yavlensky's son, Andreas, whom he had had with Helene Neznakomov, all went together to a seaport on the northern coast of Germany, a place called Prero. And he painted there, and certainly his style, his colors, and the emotion, the intensity of his paintings has a, a completely different feel from previous years. Now, that he wasn't painting really with a group then, and... He felt that this summer on the Baltic coast, both in a wonderful landscape of the Baltic and also in this famous painting of the hunchback that's in the exhibition, that he really had a turning point. He really moved forward. And certainly both works are very original. Then in 1912, he meets up with a bunch of Russian friends in, in, in southern Germany and his work takes another twist. How much contact either with Russians or the country itself, did Yelensky have between 1896 and 1912, 16 years? He had quite a lot of contact with Russians. For one thing, in Munich, there were many Russians, but also there were... Mariana von Verevkin had a salon in the large studio apartment that she rented in Schwabing near the university, and where the artists all lived, so that there were people like Sergei Diaghilev, Zakharov, dancers, poets, writers, and it was a completely intellectual environment. And Yavlensky also exhibited in Russia, so he would travel there, sometimes to install his exhibitions, whether in St. Petersburg or in Odessa, he was in Moscow, and, but both he and Verevkin, being Russian-born, had lots of contacts with Russians, and this really continued all the time right up until July of 1914, when just before the, the war started, so that there was lots of contact, and also Russians tended to travel to Germany, to Paris, even before uh, World War I, when, of course, they had to leave Germany. So why do you think he turns toward these Byzantine or Orthodox icon-like heads, particularly in, in, in 13, 14-ish, 13-ish? Because it seems, you know, to, to my untrained eye, that suddenly Russia and, and the Orthodox tradition comes suddenly flowing into the work. Well, certainly about 1912, 13, 
Yevlensky may have used Helene Meznikomov, the love of his life, as his model, but the paintings certainly aren't portraits, and they are generic types. And in the exhibition, there are paintings called, there's one that's called an Asian woman, and another one of a woman with with a green fan, where Helene Neznikomov is the model. But these are generic heads. So he really moves from painting specific people. Maybe there was a model who inspired the work, but uh, the Byzantine woman doesn't is not a portrait, and there is a portrait of Sakharov in the exhibition, but it doesn't truly look like Sakharov. It, it looks almost, in fact, many people have said to me, that's not Sakharov, that's a woman, because the, he has moved beyond specific portraits to rather generic, um, asexual, very strong, dynamic heads. During the war years, Yelensky returns to fauve landscapes and then to kind of more broadly painted divisionist landscapes. Any idea why during the war years he, I mean, artists all over the continent had many different reactions to World War One, of course. Any idea why he returns to earlier influences and ideas in the 19-teens? I think that he really sort of broke with much of what he had done before and moved in a new direction. Um, he found the war very disrupting, as most artists did. He was completely uprooted from his surroundings in Munich. He had to leave everything behind. For Switzerland? It, yes, he went to Switzerland, and Verefkin and Yavlensky went to Switzerland, where they settled in a village of Sompre, right on Lake Geneva. And it was a very small house that they rented. He had no room of his own, no atelier, and all he had was the view out the window. So he began to paint the elements that he saw out the window in a series. And it's really his first great series called Variations, where there are some trees on the left, sometimes a house, a path, and a road continuing. Sometimes you get a view of Lake Geneva in the background. But the paintings differ tremendously. They become quite abstract. In some, it's very hard to even read the elements as being a tree or a path. But there, there's one variation with a black figure, which is very rare, and another one where there's a bright red path leading back and then a black gate stopping the view from going further into the landscape. So he moves in a new direction, I think, when he is uprooted and has to go to Switzerland. He continued to paint variations even when he no longer lived in this village and when he had a different view when he lived in Zurich or then moved to Ascona and began to paint also different series, some returning to figurative paintings of, of heads and mystical heads, saviors' faces, and other series all culminating with the abstract heads. Let me, yeah, let me jump in on the abstract heads. So we are now in the, in the mid to late 1920s, for example. The abstract heads, which, which begin earlier at the very end of the 19-teens, occupy him for many years. They are, you know, as much as some of the work 15, 10 years before skated toward Matisse, these are 
Uh, these don't look like anybody else doing doing anything else. These are these are all his. Is there any biographical reason why he becomes interested in in zooming in so much on on kind of the feature laden part of faces and heads and using them as explorations of color and line? He began to be interested just in faces and heads back then in 1913 when we were talking about these rather generic. Um, paintings that he did of Byzantine women or Asian women. And then he also painted mystical heads and savior's faces. So there's a gradual transition, but he becomes interested in really the formal qualities so that in the abstract heads, you don't see any eyes, there's no gaze, there's no person that really comes out and, and makes contact with you. I think the most, so many of the abstract heads almost look like masks because he crops them quite close to the support, um, usually a cardboard, sometimes a canvas, and so that the, chin, the rounded chin touches the bottom and there are really no eyes. There's just a, some lines or a zone of color where there would be eyes and there's no hair, there's only arcs or um, different shapes for where there would be a brow. So they become very abstracted and very contemplative. In the exhibition, there are six abstract heads all on a wall uh, where they sort of float, and each one is different in the color and also in details as to how this eye zone, although they're not eyes, are indicated. And also sometimes they're planets or moons or crescent moons side next to the actual abstract head. The late great body of work is known as Meditations. Jelinski paints them in the mid-1930s. I mean, they strike me as a little bit of a summation, but they were also somewhat determined by, by physical limitation. I don't know if that's quite the right phrase. Did they read like a summation to you? And what was the, again, if it's the right phrase, physical limitation that kind of governed their making to a certain extent? Certainly the the terrible arthritis that he had suffered from since the late 20s became much worse. And so that by 1934, he really had trouble painting a larger surface or have, making uh, curved for, forms and moving his arms in a certain way. So the limitations were physical, yes, but I think that there's continuity, especially in some of the early meditations where they resemble abstract heads, but they're smaller format and the brushwork is different because physically he couldn't move the same way. And there's one uh, wonderful little meditation from 1934 called Memory of My Diseased Hands. Or there's another one, Meditation My Spirit Will Live On, indicating his own spiritual life. And I think that these late meditations in a way, go back, way, way back to when he was in Russia and he grew up with icons and uh, these small contemplative meditation images that are not really faces, aren't really people, but express his spirituality. So the show ends with a series of late floral still lifes from 1937 or so, paintings that were unknown to me. And they really 
look like kind of a brushy pre-Gustin-like advance. What are they, and how is it that he was able to make such a leap so near the end? In the very last gallery, on the very end wall, there are these three wonderful, large still lifes from 1937. And nearby, on another wall, there are a few still lifes that he painted in 1934-35. So that Yavlinsky, who had painted still lifes all his life, really returned to them in his last years, from 1934 to 1937, when... After that, he was unable to paint anymore. And yes, you're absolutely right. There is this wonderful, abstract, of otherworldly, spiritual quality to these last still lifes. They're not well known. Yavlensky painted many meditations, maybe a thousand or so in, during a three-year period. But he said that whenever his arthritis let up some, and he was able to paint more freely and without so much pain, then he would paint still lifes, usually flowers. And so at the end of the exhibition, I wanted to show some of these wonderful, uh, inspired, hopeful, otherworldly, really very joyful paintings that were done during the last month that he was able to continue painting before he became bedridden and had to stop work altogether. It's easy to imagine Cy Twombly having found them late in in Twombly's life. Yes. I mean, they're wonderful, and they aren't well-known. Many of them have remained with the family, and many of the works in the exhibition actually come from European private collections or European museums, although there are his work is well-represented by American private and public collections. But at the end, I wanted to show... And throughout the exhibition, I wanted to include works that really the people hadn't seen and that would be discoveries. And in the very last gallery, there's also music playing very quietly, which are pieces by Bach that Yavlensky loved and that he played, that he painted to while they were playing, uh, the records were playing in his studio in Wiesbaden when he was old and when he was unwell because I wanted to try to recreate the sense of his own spiritual life and something that went beyond just painting whatever he saw, but really something that he felt. Vivian Barnett, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure talking with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.